Um, idolatry. Well, there's a way to start a sermon. Uh, when we hear the word idolatry, we probably think of Eastern temples or maybe history museums full of ancient statues. But if Tim Keller is right, our modern Western society is just as full of idols as those other societies. Uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, he says, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from those ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its shrines. Whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios and stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? Now, Aussies may not think of those things, uh, beauty, power, money and achievement, may not think of them as idols, but if we define an idol as something that takes our passion and our energy and our time and our resources, if an idol is anything that's central to our life, if an idol is something that without it life hardly seems worth living, then those things really do become uh, or satisfy the definition of idols. People pursue idols. Uh, their purpose in life is to gain those things. Because in those things, uh, we find the key to, to a good life. In gaining those things, we find blessing and happiness and fulfilment. People pursue uh, the goal of becoming a managing partner, the goal to lose weight, to run a marathon, to get married, to have kids, to own a house, to make a million, to become famous to have fun, to see the world, to be yourself, to party hard, to be the best, to leave a legacy, to retire comfortably, to be healthy and free from pain. Now all of those are good things, but they can consume you and they uh, can be what you seek above everything else. They can become idols. There are idols everywhere. Uh, when Paul visited Athens in Acts 17, about AD 50, Athens, he was greatly distressed at Athens because it was full of idols, full of statues, including an idol to an unknown god. Every culture was included, every aspect of life was included. But I reckon if Paul had visited Australia today, he would be just as distressed because Australia is full of idols. Idols are good things stretched to become ultimate things. Good things to be enjoyed, but the reality is they can never satisfy you. They can't complete you, they can't define you. They're good things, but they can't complete, define or satisfy you. And so, so in the end, all of those things will, will ultimately disappoint you. You will gain them and you will say... Is that it? I pursued that thing for so long and now I finally got it and I'm still not satisfied. 
I think each of us, if we're honest, have all had that experience when we finally get something that we've wanted. I heard a story about a journalist interviewing Rupert Murdoch, then Australia's richest person, and uh, he asked him, what is your goal, how much money do you need to make? And his answer? Just a bit more than I've got at the moment. Now, I don't know for sure, but my guess is if you asked him the same question now, 91 years of age and worth 20 billion US dollars, he would probably give you the same answer. How much is enough? Just a bit more than I've got at the moment. You see, even 20 billion doesn't satisfy. Now, that's the way it is with every idol, every God replacement. So the question is, how does a Christian cope? What are we to do, surrounded by idols, surrounded by people who chase idols? How do we stay true to following God alone? Well, let's listen to the advice of Psalm 4. It's a psalm about finding true satisfaction in God alone. That's the key. Uh, It's a psalm of David. David begins by taking his complaint to God, like many of the Psalms. Uh, For David, life is tough. He wants God to change his situation. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. Now, there's something that's distressing him. We don't know what it is yet. He wants relief. Verse 2 tells us the problem. It's people who seek false gods and he for most of the rest of this psalm he speaks to those people Uh, verse 2 how long O men will you turn my glory into shame how long will you love delusions and seek false gods what does it mean to turn my glory into shame all sorts of opinions in the in the commentaries i looked at about seven but i'm pretty sure this is what it means My glory probably refers to to God. How long will you turn God into shameful things? You see, back in Psalm 3, David uses that same phrase to describe God. Uh, Psalm 3, verse 3, he says, he's speaking to God and he says, But you are a shield around me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. You are my glory. Now, the second half of uh, verse 2 helps us to explain this first half of replacing my glory for shame. Uh, The second half of the verse is about loving delusions and seeking false gods. You see, by following idols, people are choosing what's shameful and what's a delusion rather than seeking God's glory. Instead of truth, they're settling for for lies. We can tell we're on the right track, I think, because Jeremiah 2 uses similar language to describe how Israel turned from the true God and and followed idols instead. Uh, Jeremiah 2, God is speaking. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. 
and that's what this psalm's describing, isn't it? Uh, replacing my glory for delusions. Romans chapter 1 describes the same mistake. Paul in, you know, a, a thousand years later. People who foolishly replace the one who's worthy of worship with things that are unworthy of worship. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man or birds or animals and reptiles. You see, the idols may look different in each age, but people make the same mistake. They choose to worship created things rather than worshipping the creator. They exchange what's false, uh, sorry, they exchange what's true for something that's false. Now that's the problem. And so David's reaction is to be heartbroken. These are his people. His people who, who should be living in a covenant relationship with God. Yahweh has called them to be his people alone, to be faithful to him. And so David, verse 3, speaks to the people, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He's jealous for your affection. Just be distinctly his, not other gods. Verse 3b, it's only God who hears and answers prayer. The Lord will hear when I call to him. That's what it means to be in a relationship with God. You talk to him. Maybe David is specifically meaning that he will pray for the wayward people. And so then in verse 4, he's talking to the people again and he explains to them the way back. Verse 4, In your anger do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Another tricky verse, uh, the word translated anger actually means to tremble. There's a perfectly good word for anger, but... in Hebrew, but it's not that, that's not the one they use. They use the word for tremble. And so a better translation for verse 4 is probably tremble and don't sin. So I think what he's saying is, is he's speaking to these people who are following idols and he's saying, recognise your mistake, fear God and stop. Respond to him correctly. The second half of the verse once again helps us understand the first half of the verse. Search your hearts and be silent. Think about your life. Recognise the emptiness, the futility of the idols you've been chasing. And be silent. Give up your arguments. Stop your protests and come to the end of your own efforts. Now it's interesting, isn't it, how, how these thoughts about the futility of our life the midlife crisis thoughts, uh, that's what a midlife crisis is, isn't it? Realising that the idols you've been chasing are worthless. It's funny how those thoughts often come at night <laughs> when you're lying at your, on your bed and you're staring at the ceiling and you can't sleep. The busyness of life is not there to distract you and, and you begin to replay the events of your life and, and your motivations and you question your assumptions. I thought that once I got this thing, I'd be happy. But I'm not. I'm still empty. I'm still not happy. It's not satisfying me. What will satisfy me? And that's what David wants these idolaters to do, to examine their life and stop. 
But that's only half the solution, isn't it? If you're headed the wrong way down a one-way street, stopping, you're still going to get hit. You've actually got to turn around and head in the opposite direction. And so verse 5 gives us the right response. Not just stop the wrong one, but make the right response. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Don't just recognise your mistake of following false gods, replace it with the right response. Trust the true God and then offer him the appropriate or right sacrifices, what he requires. Keep your side of his covenant agreement. Well, that's the advice. From verse 6, David turns to his own experience, perhaps as an example. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I think what David's saying is that all around him, he sees people seeking idols to make their life better. Now, we think about our situation, but just put yourself in David's situation. Uh, the Israelites are in the Promised Land, they're in Canaan. Uh, they're intermingled, surrounded by people of other nations. Nations who were living there before they arrived. Nations who'd farmed and prospered for centuries, doing things a certain way, sacrificing to their gods. And so Israel's temptation was to follow their neighbours especially when God didn't seem to be working for them, when there was drought or war or infertility or sickness. The temptation is to say, well, life's all right for them. Maybe I need to do things their way. The temptation is to seek a blessed life by presenting offerings to the gods of the land, to offer sacrifices for fertility, for food, for luck, for rain, for health, for sunshine, for peace, for success. I think that's what David means when he says, many are saying, who can show us any good? Now that's David's situation, that's Israel, but it's like that for us, isn't it? We look around us at the, the wealthy, successful people and we say, oh, I wouldn't mind it if my life looked like that. People seek idols to make life better. Money to make life comfortable. Popularity to boost our importance. Promotion to build our influence. Travel to make life exciting. Study to develop our tools for success. People are looking for idols to make life better. But then David's prayer stands in contrast to that waywardness let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You see, it's not the puny, specialised gods who will bring blessing. It's God alone who blesses. Yahweh alone is the creator and sustainer. And so David's request is to him for blessing. And then verse 7, we see how that attitude works itself out in David's experience. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. You see, when you begin with this faith commitment that God is the one who brings the things of your life, both good and bad, that acceptance can 
uh, leads to a contentment. It leads to a joyfulness. Joy which is deeper and more resilient than the happiness of circumstance. Happiness that depends on grain or new wine. You see, God is the one who fills our heart with, with a greater joy than the joy that idols can bring. A joy that's richer than the temporary fun of a party or the achievement of a promotion or the warm welcome from a friend or the buzz from a new romance or the excitement of a holiday. God gives greater joy than those things. And then on top of that experience of joy, there's, there's a peace and a trust of life. Verse 8. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Idols can't protect you while you sleep, but God can. Do you notice the contrast between the two sets of people on their beds? The idolaters lie on their beds and they're silent as they ponder their mistakes and the futility of their life. But David's silence is because he's sleeping peacefully. God's protecting him and he's content. So how do we get to that place? When the idols around us are attractive and obvious and persuasive and noisy, how do we say no to them? How do we not love the world? and instead single-mindedly seek God and love him. Well, the key to not being attracted by idols is, is to more and more recognise the goodness of God himself. The key is to recognise the goodness of God himself. Uh, Thomas Chalmers wrote a couple of hundred years ago a little book uh, on that strategy of replacing one desire with a better desire. And it's got the wonderful title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he says that to simply point out how empty the world's attractions are is altogether incompetent and ineffective. I love the way people wrote a couple of hundred years ago. It takes me about an hour to work out what a paragraph means, but once you do, it's great. Pointing out how empty the world's attractions are is altogether incompetent and ineffective. It doesn't work just to say, oh, that's worthless. Don't follow that. You've got to replace loving the world with loving something better. The only way to rescue and recover the heart from that wrong affection, Chalmers says... The only way to rescue and recover the heart from the wrong affection is to set forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, here's the, here's the trick, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. You see, you can't just empty a heart. A heart has to want something. Our hearts are idle factories. We make idols to fill our heart. King David knew it. 
Idols are no attraction to him because he knows and loves his God. His heart is filled with God. Just look at this psalm for an example. God is righteous, verse 1. Verse 1, he's merciful. Verse 3, he's electing. Verse 3, he responds to him in prayer. He's generous and gracious and good in verse 6 and 7. Verse 8, he protects him. So there's the key. Don't try simply to not think about money or pleasure or success. You have to replace that by meditating on the excellencies of God. Now that centres on meditating on Jesus. To meditate on the excellencies of God, we need to look at Jesus. You see, as well as David knew his God, as well as his heart was after God, we know God better than King David did. We know God better than King David did because we know Jesus. We know the gospel. We know the love of God, his mercy, goodness and generosity. We know forgiveness and sonship. His spirit indwells and empowers us. You see, our list of God's good gifts are greater even than King David. Now that's the point Thomas Chalmers makes very eloquently and verbosely over about 20 pages. It's not a long read, but he's basically got one point. The solution is replace your love for the world with the love of God in Jesus. And so he says, It is God apprehended by the believer as God in Christ who alone can dethrone the world from its ascendancy. It is when we are enabled by faith, which is his own gift, to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and to hear his beseeching voice as it protests goodwill to men. That's the gospel. As you hear the gospel, you're recognising God's goodness. To hear his beseeching voice as it protests goodwill to men and entreats the return of all who will to a full pardon, it is then that a love greater than the love of the world and at length expulsive of it first arises in the regenerated bosom. It replaces it because it expulses (laughs) the love of the world. You see, the more we understand the gospel, the more we understand what God has done for us in Jesus the more we love him and the more that love replaces the love for the world. The love for the idols that promise to make life better. As good as those words are of Thomas Chalmers, I want to finish with some of Jesus' words. Uh, John chapter 4 One of my favourite passages, I say that about a lot of passages, but this, John 4 is, it's one of my favourite passages. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, We find out a little bit further on that she's had five husbands and she's on on to number six. Uh, And he says to her in verse 10, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
You see, Jesus is the gift of God. He is the one who can satisfy her. Just as a cool glass of water satisfies her physical thirst, he's the one who can satisfy her life thirst, who can give her peace and contentment and rest that nothing else can. She thinks he's talking about a drink, and so Jesus explains in a bit more depth, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not just satisfaction now, not just satisfaction in this life, but satisfaction that lasts for eternity. The woman's interested, but she's still not really understanding. She asks for living water so she won't have to keep coming to the well. Living water means running water in in Greek, just like we, running water means two things in English. Living water in in Greek means both running and alive. So there's this pun. I I think Jesus uses puns, and this is an example. But but Jesus wants to stretch her even further, and he wants to push her beyond uh, her understanding of literal thirst. And he says, go and fetch your husband. Now, people think he's changing topic, but he's not changing topic. He's talking about thirst. This is where we find out about her history of six men. You see, relationships is the well that she's been drinking from. And it's not satisfying her. She's been looking for satisfaction in the idols of, I don't know, it could be romance. It could be security. It could be comfort. It could be sex. But she's looking for satisfaction in those idols and she's still thirsty. And Jesus knows that only he can satisfy her thirst. Only he can give her living water that wells up to eternal life. He's the answer. So don't pray that God will give you the desires of your heart. Don't pray that you'll get the idol that you're seeking. Pray that God will make himself the desire of your heart. You're tempted to think that life will be better if only you can get whatever it is. But the truth is, Jesus is enough. If you're lonely and want friendship, Jesus is enough. If you're single and want to get married, Jesus is enough. If you're struggling financially, Jesus is enough. If you're ambitious and want recognition or a promotion, Jesus is enough. If you're unwell or in chronic pain, Jesus is enough. If you're bored and want excitement, Jesus is enough. If you're overweight, unfit or unhappy with how you look, Jesus is enough. If your kids or spouse or friends overlook and underappreciate you, Jesus is enough. If you're scared about the future and you want security, Jesus is enough. May David's prayer be your prayer. 
Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Amen.